I'm Ray Rogers. And I'm Brad Kepler. You're listening to Fix This, a podcast exploring tech ideas and solutions to some of today's largest challenges. If you have a smartphone or just regular access to a computer, statistically, you likely engage in social media in some way, shape, or form. In a June 2019 report, the Pew Research Center published a social media fact sheet. When they first started collecting data way back in 2005, only 5% of the U.S. adult population used at least one social media platform. But jump ahead just six years, and that number rose to 50% of all Americans in 2011. And if you fast forward to 2019, the number got even bigger, 72%. That same report also broke down just how often people are visiting each platform. For many, social media is a key part of their day-to-day routine, but it all adds up to a lot of time on our phones, computers, and tablets. And that social engagement is part of what inspired Tariq Fancy to found the nonprofit Rumi Initiative. Tariq thought, what if little pockets of the day were dedicated to learning new skills instead of just mindlessly scrolling through social media? And what if those lessons could be shared globally with traditionally underserved communities to further expand access to education? Here's Ray and Tariq. So Tariq, how did you go from a background and career in investment banking to starting Rumi? What inspired you to jump into global education? I almost ended up in investment banking a bit by accident. It was probably a path well-trodden by many people when you end up at the end of undergrad and don't really know what to do next. And so I learned a lot and built sort of a career doing it, uh, starting off actually as a tech banker in a group in Silicon Valley that had actually led the IPO of Amazon. But at some point, I, I started to realize that I wanted to get closer to my passion of working on social impact issues, and in particular, around education. And then a very close friend of mine from business school who had been my roommate contracted stage four cancer. And this friend of mine, his name was Mikhail, um, fought stage four cancer for two and a half years. And in that time, actually founded a charity doing work in Kenya. And it really inspired me to stop and think of what I think I'll really care about when I know that I'm near the end of my life. And that was Rumi. And I had the idea. And that sort of all coalesced at the right time and place that I decided to largely in his honor, just jump off the diving board and give it a shot. Tell me a little bit more about Rumi's mission. In large part, we are simply trying to find a way to take the free digital learning revolution and bring it to underserved communities who who have the most to gain from it, but are traditionally the least likely to access it. And largely because the more affluent communities that already have good access get all the access to the latest tools. And those that never had great access earlier aren't really seeing any of the benefits because they tend not to use it. And so uh, central to our mission is to really lower the barriers. So after spending a number of years working and bringing free digital learning tools to remote, offline, and really underserved communities around the world, we made a big part of our model uh, listening. And as we did more work in these communities and we watched and understood both what they wanted and how they use technology, we found that they really wanted courses that taught life and career skills and largely soft skills that they felt were the ones that they did not have natural and easy access to and that basic educational systems weren't really giving them. And they also wanted it to be deliverable in a mobile first way and usable in short snippets. The more you can lower the barrier and make it easier for them to learn, even if they have five or six minutes while waiting for the bus or waiting at a laundromat or or wherever it is, the easier it is to give them the tools they need and, and to drive impact. 
Can you talk a little bit more about why bytes? Was there any data behind this strategy or why micro learning? There's a few reasons why we're so bullish on micro learning. In general, the data shows very, very high engagement. Education has traditionally been focused very much on quality. And that's largely because you're in a formal educational setting and you don't really have a choice. Let's say it's a one-hour lecture in a class in high school or your university, and you're seven minutes into that lecture. You know, if it's boring, you can't really walk out and leave because you have societal expectations, parental expectations, you know, you've paid tuition. It's a captive audience. And the technology space, by contrast, we found was very much focused on engagement. If you're creating TikTok videos, you know, you know that someone has an option to just put down their phone or close the app in one second. So you don't really have a captive audience. And what we found was often education technology was sort of only focusing on the quality bit and not engagements. We've actually seen examples where people took textbooks and they digitized them into PDFs. And then they said, okay, great. Now people can access it on their phone. Uh, In theory, that does count as education technology. In practice, you get zero engagement because no one really wants to read a textbook on their smartphone. Um, Then you get social media. So they're very, very good at, at driving engagement and allows you to consume in small bits. But of course, the quality isn't really there. With education technology, you need quality and you need engagement. And what the data showed us was that you know we knew how to build quality because we'd been doing education work for years and uh, had done various impact studies and it had it had it thoroughly vetted. But what we really wanted to prove really was the engagement piece because we knew that if we could get that piece right, we could drive our impact times 100. Do you have any metrics that you can share about how many different bytes are in the library or how many learners you've reached, how many countries you're in? So the learner numbers are in the hundreds of thousands. The byte numbers are below a thousand actually, but are growing very, very quickly with the community we're growing. And so that's now in over 30 countries, we're growing it very aggressively. And I'd say that the most exciting things we're doing around that are starting to work with infrastructure players to bring bytes closer to learners. So that is public Wi-Fi providers. We're working with the largest mobile operator in Afghanistan to make access to bytes free of data charges. And, and all of these initiatives really just continue what we've always tried to do from the beginning, which is to try to make learning fun, easy, free, and very, very accessible for the communities that are the least likely to access it, but have the most to gain. So who is building all of your content? One, we have a large volunteer instructional design community. These are all people who are experts in instructional design, and they're either graduate students or experts in the field. And that is a very involved community. It it feels a little bit like Wikipedia in the sense that they're online volunteers and they're creating content that's open and free. The second category are experts in specific areas. So to give you an example, the astronaut Chris Hadfield just wrote uh, and published a bite. And uh, then we run volunteer workshops with companies where uh, their employees can all log on to a platform. And on the platform, they will indicate where their skill areas are and where their interest areas are. And the platform then matches them to uh, into small teams where they're working alongside other people who have identified similar interest areas. And they collaborate on creating a bite that is aligned to their skills and passion. We do a lot of work to track how the actual employees engage with the platform to better understand, you know, is this boosting morale? Is this, you know, helping move workforce culture metrics? And what we've found is that, you know, if, if employees go to a park to pick up garbage, you know, it feels, it feels good because they're doing volunteer work, but it's, it's a missed opportunity because it's not aligned with their skills. And there's sort of an understanding that 
you know, they're doing something, but they could be doing more. And what we've found is that by uh, doing it this way um, in a very virtual skills-based environment, you have much greater value on both sides. Can you tell us more about Rumi? I know that you have described it as born in the AWS cloud. You've been using it since the beginning, but how has it really helped you to reach a global audience and to build out the nonprofit? Well, you know, born in the AWS cloud for us actually has a double meaning in, in a really exciting way. You know, we've been using AWS since the very beginning. Building it in the cloud has just helped us to build it very, very quickly to have a flexible infrastructure to be able to grow at exactly the speed that we were growing our programs and really just do it in a way that was very, very streamlined, very, very quick and very, very cost effective, all of which tend to be very important for a nonprofit, uh, especially a sort of earlier stage one that has you know, really facilitated us getting to where we are now. But the second instance, it's actually powered by AWS in the sense of human capital also, because AWS employees have actually done workshops with us and created content that you'd be able to find today on, on Rumi Learn if you went to rumi.org. If you could boil it down to the one thing that you're most proud of about Rumi, what would it be? I think that right now, at a time that the world really needs viable alternatives to social media, and uh, we're building something that really gives you a similar dopamine rush. The research shows you do get one from learning something if you can start and finish something that is discrete and you feel like you've learned an insight or a concept. And we're building something that allows a similar approach, but one that brings value to the user, right? We'll only ever want you to spend time on it because you're learning something that's improving your life. And I think that right now, uh, especially given all of the sort of the mental health crisis and, and the growing concern about social media, I think that that is really something that over the next five years is going to be really, really important for our communities. According to the World Bank, by the year 2017, nearly 49% of the entire world had access to the internet. And in recent years, that percentage has only grown. So Rumi meets learners where they are, right in the palm of their hands. Brad, meeting learners where they are, that's something that we've discussed a lot in our past episodes. And something that really unites these stories is the cloud, which has helped nonprofits, edtechs, and other educational institutions not only dream of, but also actually build and deploy efficient, cost-effective, and often new ways to meet their students' needs using things like artificial intelligence. Learners now have access to lessons, as Tariq mentioned, even while waiting for a bus. But what about underserved students in classrooms? In India and around the world, many students strive to improve their English skills as a means of social mobility. English Helper is an education technology company who aims to reach underserved students in India and beyond to help them learn how to read and write in English with their AI-based Write to Read program. I am Pallavi Kandelwa, Vice President at English Helper. I head product development, marketing and communications at the company. I am Sriram Shankar, Chief Technology Officer at English Helper. I am responsible for all things tech. I was really attracted to English Helper for the opportunity to create a viable tech-driven enterprise that has massive life-changing impact, not just in India, but around the world. We are a social enterprise with a view to enable English literacy and develop English proficiency, focusing on underserved communities in India and the world. We focus on early stage learners, uh, that is the K through 12, and we do this in a very scalable, sustainable way. Hundreds of different languages are spoken across India. It's an incredibly diverse country, and English is just one language that is spoken there. 
And it's a language that can often unite people from different geographies and students who are able to speak English fluently have different economic opportunities and job prospects. But who has access to English can be another story. Can you tell me about the divide between who is typically learning English and who has less access to learn English and how English Helper is really helping to bridge that divide? One of the things that your question highlights a very important aspect of India's uh, English capability. Across the world, we are considered as one of those countries which has a significantly large population that speaks English. And we know that close to 150 million people here are reasonably proficient in English. So in, in this country, you'll see that those who are in the rural section have little or absolutely no proficiency when it comes to the English language. And this creates an English-driven divide between the rich and the poor. We are looking to address this problem at the grassroots level. And how we do this is we are using technology and we are able to integrate our solution uh, not only into their classroom, but also their curriculum. It's an effort to level the playing field. And if we don't go and address the issue in the classroom, focusing on early literacy, the divide is just going to get bigger. And, you know, especially with the COVID coming in, the divide seems to become even more significant. What exactly is Right to Read? Right to Read is basically a program that addresses the problem at the grassroots level. It focuses on the government K-12 system, where we have the largest student-going population with 170 million students and the largest number of government schools, which is 1.2 million government schools in the country. Because we integrate with the school curriculum, we see that the teachers in this find it not as something additional that they need to do, but it sort of acts as a force multiplier for the teacher within the classroom. Uh, with the students, they seem to be a lot more attentive in the right to read class because they now get a chance to practice in the class in a much more interactive way. So to have this impact at scale, you have really grown significantly in the last few years. So you have to scale up your technology and scale up your product to handle all of that demand. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've grown over the past five or so years? We started with 100 schools and 20,000 students in partnership with American India Foundation. And at that time, we wanted to prove the concept. And soon after, once we were able to do that, we scaled to 5,000 schools with a million students. In 2018 onwards, we moved from there to 25,000 schools, impacting 8 million children. Now, our goal for 2021 was to reach 100,000 schools, impacting close to 20 million students. And what's interesting, Rachel, is this is almost 10% of the government school network. There's various research out there that tells you that various kinds of technology can be used in a classroom environment in a number of ways. But teachers overwhelmingly reject stuff that adds to their workloads, right? Who likes extra work? So we've recognized that and we've tried to reduce change management and therefore barriers to resistance. These make it very easy, really, for the program to be adopted across a wide variety of use cases that you will come across in a country as diverse as India. We also work very closely with various partners, including not-for-profits, 
organizations that are already working with the government school system we realize and recognize that our forte really lies in technology uh, in language learning and executing and bringing all of this together some of the work related to dealing with government school systems we leave to our partners who are a lot better at it than us so how is the cloud really helping you to meet this many learners and reach this many schools this would not have been possible to do this without the cloud working with cloud providers like aws makes it very efficient very flexible and very cost effective to take our solutions to millions of customers and learners another one big advantage is the automation that we've been able to build into our cloud operations when we were at 5000 schools and we were not on the cloud we shipped 5000 dvds that we then fedex to about 5000 schools across india in various remote corners now it's just one click downloaded off the cloud and you're set installation and licensing was a pain we've reduced that to probably 10 minutes or less in order to get up and running with our solution our product when we were at 5000 schools support and troubleshooting and updates happened through in person visits to 5000 schools i mean can you imagine 5000 we visited 5000 schools over a period of 2 years but now we've built a system that captures product usage and then phones it in to our servers every time it detects a valid internet connection and then we analyze this data in near real time uh, to be able to deliver insights to stakeholders uh, we use this data to deliver pats on the back to schools that might be using uh, you know uh, read to me that is the software that underpins the right to read program that might be using it really well uh, and we enc- use this data also to encourage schools that are not probably using it well so uh, we are able to support the entire program we are able to troubleshoot in real time this would not have been possible had it not been for the cloud so read to me is an ai based tool can you talk to me about what read to me does and how the cloud has really underpinned some of the work that you're doing under the hood we train read to me to read any textbook so whether it's the translation we are able to lo- localize it localization becomes an ai tool which really really adapts to the needs of the user especially from a local perspective as part of the right to read program the final version of read to me may be residing on your desktops or maybe present as an app on your phone but ultimately it's phoning in a lot of that usage data back to our servers why are certain schools using it very effectively why are certain schools not using it effectively what are the kinds of errors that they are saying and we are able to see this in a near real time kind of basis has the pandemic at all changed how you're doing business or how you're approaching this challenge and can you talk a little bit about how you're going to scale even larger in this time for students coming from low income families school being shut unfortunately also means education is shut for them so when we started looking at the covid-19 situation we are giving government schools and governments the solution to not only give the students access to read to me in their hand but also take their classes virtually so teachers can also now teach uh, using read to me on a virtual platform there's still a large number of students out there who probably still don't have access to smartphones uh, don't have access to the right kinds of connectivity we have a mandate from the government to roll out the right to read program in all 10000 schools in sri lanka and uh, we are working with microfinance companies really to see if they can provide uh, libraries of devices so students can share devices across families 
in other states like the Indian state of Himachal Pradesh, we ran a two-year pilot, and now the government has given us the go-ahead to implement across their entire school system in the entire state. And all of this is being done in a very affordable manner. From the bus stop to underserved students, the cloud's ability to help organizations scale with cost-effective learning solutions will ultimately help improve access to quality education all around the world. Thank you to our guests, Tariq, Pallavi, and Sriram. To learn more about AWS for Education, visit aws.amazon.com education. And thank you for tuning in. If you liked today's episode, please help us spread the word by rating the show, sharing this episode with your friends and your family, and subscribing for more stories. We'll catch you on the next one.